I was just telling Anna, I feel like it's not fair that like when I do this once every like year, that I get so much encouragement and love and Jonathan and Kyle just do it every week and we just take it for granted that they like pull this off week in and week out. Um, but my name is Rachel. I'm a commission partner here at Mosaic. If you are new to our gathering or our community or maybe joining us online, we are led um, by two co-pastors here, Jonathan Miller and Kyle Kilo, who you saw playing worship earlier. Um, and I am around here most Sundays uh, just as a general member of our community. I am here with my husband and we have three kids. If you hear screaming, they're probably mine. So like it's fine. I'm used to talking around them. It's all good. But today we are going to be in Ruth. Um, we are continuing in our series on hospitality as a spiritual discipline. And so far we have come on this journey of seeing God's hospitality towards his people. In week one, um, Jonathan talked about how God's hospitality is woven into creation itself, right? Like we, we discussed how God is, is forming his relationship with us through hospitality in such a way that even when we offer hospitality to others, we are the ones who are still in a position to receive from God. It is this crucial element of how we relate to him. God is by nature hospitable. And last week, Kyle kind of moved that thread along into Leviticus, where we talked about how God expects his people to be hospitable, right? He writes into their laws and into their codes and the way they handle everything from farmland to sacrifices a way of providing for the outsider, for the refugee, for the vulnerable among them. And as we talked last week, the biggest um, sort of example of that that comes to mind is this way that they would leave margin in their field, right? Cal talked about how it was this lavish waste because you would leave this space for any who might need it, not knowing what would happen or what it was for. And today, we're going to take these ideas, these concepts in the law, and we're going to zoom in a little bit, and we're going to see how everything plays out in the story of a family. Um, whenever you're doing like, a, like one of those read a Bible in a year plans, when you come to Ruth, it's like, Poof, you know, like it's, it's a little bit of a breather here in the Old Testament, so to speak. It's a narrative story that kind of puts together all of the things that are leading up to it in Judges and in these books of the law. It's a little bit less complicated. All of this geopolitical stuff and these archaic customs, we do see in the story of Ruth, but it's not, it's not quite so in your face, right? This is a narrative, everyday story about people carrying on their lives in the face of prosperity and tragedy and just trying to be people, just trying to work the way God has called them to work, right? And so as we get to Ruth, it's important to keep that in mind. This is just essentially the story of a family, right? Tim Mackey calls Ruth God's big story inside of a little story. And I love that. Now, I know Tiffany sort of suffered through a pretty long passage. <laughs> Fortunately, there aren't a lot of really confusing names in Ruth, but uh, it was a long stretch. Where, and where we picked up the story today, Ruth is in the barley field. But just as a reminder to how we got there, Ruth is a foreigner from the land of Moab. Uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her husband, Elimelech, have moved to the land of Moab because of a famine. And in that famine, they are driven into God's enemies, essentially. These are the people that are the bad guys in the story of the Israelites. 
And while they are there, their sons take Moabite women for wives. Elimelech dies, as do his sons, and it leaves these two women destitute. It leaves these women defenseless in the ancient system. And so Naomi practically decides that she is going to return to her homeland where she can try to eke out a survival. Right? She's too old to bear another child. This is pretty much the end for her. It's devastation and bitterness. And Ruth says, in this moment of loyalty and kindness, this moment that we have written books and sermons about for good reason, Ruth says, I will go with you, and your God will be my God. And if we die, we die together, right? But I will serve you and your God forever. And so we know Ruth to be this woman of incredible, noble, and character as we read, as we like read about her today. But at the moment the story picks up, she is in the margin of a barley field, right? And her distant relative, Boaz, is a wealthy, status-holding man, as we know. And when he encounters her, there's this otherness that we're supposed to get. And this is not an otherness that, like, I feel like in our society we make this sort of, like, opposites attract, sort of unlikely buddy pairings, movies all the time. And this is not that, right? This is... This is painful in their difference, in their otherness. Like, we are talking about privilege and destitution. We are talking about differences in ethnicity and politics. And in every kind of way, these two people are insanely different. And it's supposed to make us deeply uncomfortable, right? It is supposed to make us wonder how they can even begin to connect. But the thing about Boaz is that he has been preparing for this moment before Ruth ever got there, right? He didn't handpick Ruth to be in his field. He is simply following the, the laws of the land. He is being faithful to what God has intended for his space. He has this view of God as the giver of the land and himself as the cultivator of it. And we know that because he is following the laws that is laid out in Leviticus, right? It is, it is God's land, and he is merely cultivating it. And he is leaving space where God says to leave space, right? We were talking to this week in the office, and um, Jonathan and Kyle and I, and Jonathan made the point. He said, you know, we will take up space wherever we can. Like, as humans, as people, as just sort of a selfish group anyway, like, we will spread into every margin we can imagine, right? And we do it in all kinds of ways. We spread into our margins with our finances, with our calendars, with our family life, anything, our relationships. We are people who want to spread into the margins and take it up and consume these spaces that God has given us. And while there's nothing wrong with being a cultivator of space, just like in the garden, there's a problem when we move into consuming spaces for our own um, wants and needs to build ourselves up, to make ourselves um, great, make our names great, something shifts and we are no longer cultivating God's good land, we are consuming it for our own benefit. And we see that Boaz refuses to do that. Boaz is leaving space for whatever God intends, whatever it looks like, right? He has no idea that Ruth is the one that will come. And so he encounters Ruth um, by, by God's vision of who she is. 
He has his eyes fixed in worship, day in and day out, year in and year out. He is reminding himself in the simplest of ways, right, in the way he lays his boundary, that God himself is making space for the poor, for the refugee, for the outsider, that God has always intended to bring these people in. And so when Ruth comes in to Boaz's field, he does not see her as somebody that is costing him something. He can see her rightly. He can see her not by her otherness, but by this, this picture that God has given her of a woman of character and nobility, a woman who was always intended to be grafted in, a woman who there was always space to be made for. And Boaz would have done fine to leave space in his field for her, but that's not just what Boaz does. We see that as he notices her work and he hears more of her story, he brings her up to his table, like his everyday workplace table, his peanut butter sandwich kind of environment, right? He is bringing her in. And so often when we talk about hospitality, what we're really thinking about, I think, is charity, right? We're thinking about this idea of like, we give money, we give resources, we give time, whatever it is, to the poor, and we feel better about ourselves, right? If we do this, these acts of charity, we can feel like we've done our part, we have fulfilled our obligations, and we can move on from our lives. All the while, in doing so, we are leaving friends and neighbors and beloved people in the margins. And what Boaz does is he brings Ruth to where she's supposed to be, which is at the table, right? And that's the difference, I think, in hospitality, is hospitality brings people up to God's table. It gives them the dignity and the honor and the respect that God always intended them to have. God always intended his people to be a city on a hill that would bring the outsider in. This is what we see in this very simple act. And we know Boaz for more heroic things, right? We know Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He is this Christ-like figure in the Old Testament. But I think we really blow by this moment where he brings Ruth out of the margins and up to the table. It's this moment that doesn't happen when you're obsessed with your own status, when building your own production, wondering how everybody costs you something or how everybody can benefit you. And you begin to treat people as workers, as thing, objects to be used. And Boaz just refuses to do that. Boaz maintains this mentality of Ruth as someone who has a rightful place at the table that God is setting, right? Um... And we know that Boaz will go on to do bigger things for Ruth. But it starts there. It starts with bread and with vinegar. It starts with the simplicity of dignity. And so I think, I think about that um, as we move through the scriptures. We will see that Boaz redeems her. In the ancient practices, just as a refresher, I know a lot of you are familiar with Ruth, but in the ancient practices, Ruth is destitute without someone who will come and marry her and redeem the land. It was this, this role um, of a relative. It was their responsibility to come in and rescue a widow in distress, essentially. This person would buy the land and um, marry the wife, and that way it preserved the, the property in the family name. It preserved a way for a woman to have income. It actually preserved her lineage, right? Because the family name would continue on in the same family. It was this way of 
maintaining a system of equality and justice that God had always intended. And Ruth is in desperate need of somebody to do that for her. And so eventually through this relationship to Boaz, through these simple moments of kindness and hospitality and welcoming into the table, creates this dialogue and Ruth is able to ask him to redeem her. And so he goes to the town square and he asks the next person in line if they will do it because it's actually not his rightful place. And I think we see in that a lesson on humility from Boaz. Boaz is constantly submitting himself, not to the way he wants to handle any situation in the care of Ruth, but he's submitting himself to God's plan and his purposes. And so he goes and he asks this cousin, brother-in-law, twice removed, whoever it is, you know, to, to marry her. And he's all in when he hears about the land. He's thinking about what Ruth can provide for him. But then he hears that Ruth is a part of the package. And then he says, that's a little too complicated, right? It messes with his own children's inheritance. It's, it's an inconvenience and it's taxing and it's a price he's not willing to pay to see God's system playing out. And so Boaz, because he's always intended to do it, he steps up, he marries Ruth, again, because he's no longer seeing her as some person who's just submitted to the margins. He's seeing her as an heir to all of God's promises, right? He's seeing her in this different kind of way because of their interaction at a table, because they have communicated um, so often as, as brothers and sisters in what God is doing. Um, and so as he marries her, we know that they have a son named Obed, and then and in just a few short generations, it will produce King David, right? This story of Ruth actually opens with the idea that the, everything is in chaos. It says it takes place in the time of Judges, right? Judges is this time of discord and almost anarchy. It's this time of political tension. It's this time when there are outsiders and insiders, and everything is very complicated. And at the end of Ruth... Through a simple family and through simple acts of faithfulness, we see a king being provided, right? The genealogies are telling the story that not only has one outsider been grafted in, but that many more outsiders are about to be grafted in, right? There's this, this moment that we have to realize that Boaz and Ruth are doing so much more than changing their own stories and their own circumstances and their own lives. They're shifting the kingdom as it will become and take shape. They are making a way for something completely different and new that will provide for everyone. And it will restore Israel as this city on a hill that it's supposed to be. And I think like we don't have barley fields, obviously. You may have a barley field. I don't have a barley field. Um, but we have all of these other spaces that we inhabit. And some of us are people of privilege and we have a lot of space. Some of us are people with less privilege, and we don't have as much space. But wherever you find yourself, God has given us space. And it begs the question, what are we to do with that as we cultivate? And I think about Jesus, because in Matthew, Jesus says that if you give a cup of water to the least of these, you've given it to me. Right? There's this, this notion that these little, tangible, finite moments 
of kindness and restoration are doing more than just quenching thirst or feeding hunger. They're, they're shifting something deeper into the kingdom, right? They're, they're restoring the dignity of our brothers and our sisters. They're, they're making things the way God always intended them to be. And we see it again in Hebrews. We see um, Hebrews is sort of like this, this letter to the down and outs, right? Hebrews reads like a, like a halftime uh, pep talk in a locker room. Like if you've ever watched Friday Night Lights or any football movie, really, like, you know, the team is losing by a few points. And then Coach Taylor comes in and he's like, clear eyes, full hearts, can't, whatever he says. Yeah, Alex and I messed it up so many times, like, and joked about it for so long that I can't even remember what the actual saying is. But they're persecuted people. And Hebrews is written to remind them of their identity, and not just their identity, but to remind them of the identity of Christ, that Jesus is making old things new. Jesus is restoring his presence beyond just the tabernacle. God is moving and acting faithfully among his people. It's this reminder to see God at work in their life. And it's interesting that in this reminder, they call them to hospitality. The author says, remember to host because you might actually entertain angels and not know it. It's this idea that there's so much more going on than meets the surface, right? It's this call to a deeper sort of lifestyle that doesn't just see our own production and our own value, but rather it sees the value of what God is doing in the world around us. God is telling such a bigger story than we can imagine. And I think about that constantly in all sorts of different ways. Like, I just moved. Uh, we, we just moved into a house. Uh, most of you helped me move. Uh, <laughs> a lot of you helped me move. Um, and it was this big ordeal for our family. And we had this moment where we came back to our old house that we'd lived in for five years, and it was completely empty. And it was just bare. There were walls. There were floors. There were scratches that the kids had left in the paint everywhere. Like, it was just house. And I couldn't help but think about all the times that I had spent curating this house, meticulously like rearranging the furniture of the house and deciding that something looked better over there and trying to find something on sale to fill this spot. And, and there were all these ways that I was trying to curate this house. And some of that is good. Like we have artistic gifts, not me, but some of you have artistic gifts. We're meant to cultivate them. There's nothing wrong with that, but I was obsessed with building my own image up in this house, right? Like, I was obsessed with, like, I wanted my house to look nice. I wanted it to reflect well on me. I wanted people to come in and be like, wow, you're really good at decorating, and, and whatever it is. And it never quite worked out. I have a white couch, and I have three children under six. So that alone canceled that out, right? Like that, that meant that there was always a blanket across the couch because you just couldn't look underneath it, right? There was a lot going on. It meant that the kids' rooms were never picked up. Like there was, nothing was ever quite as I imagined it to be, quite what I wanted to represent to the world as people came into our home. But when all of that was gone, I was reminded of the story that God told in that house. I was reminded of all the ways that God spoke his graciousness and his kindness there, right? Like I was reminded of all the, the simple meals that we had, 
the ways our family grew, the ways that we um, got to know our kids and our neighbors and all of the people in our lives that got to come through this space. And I realized that while I had been so consumed with building this other thing, God had been telling a story in my house, in my little bitty house. God had been transforming this everyday table. My table is like a 1980s farm table that like, like not in like a cool way, not like in a Chip and Joanna Gaines way, like in a, like it came from my grandparents' house kind of way. And over that table, God had been telling this story. He had been restoring us. He had been giving dignity into this, this space for us and for our loved ones and for our children, like there was so much more going on than all I had built into this moment, right? There were so many times when my hospitality was messy and uncoordinated, and people, because I lived close, people would just show up because they loved us, and they're very kind. I'm looking at you. Like, I remember one time Mia came over, and she was like, I'm here, and our house looked like an actual bomb had gone off. And Mia was like, I'm going to fold some laundry, you know, and she just stepped into that role and God told this story of dignity and togetherness, not just to me, but to her. Like, God was building us as equals at a table. And this is the thing that Boaz does for Ruth. This is the thing we are invited to do if we'll simply make space for it, right? This is the thing that God has said through the power of the Spirit. He has, he has released us to do this thing, to shift the kingdom in all of these unexpected ways, if we will only look up from the thing that we are trying to build. I'm still convinced my house really won't be perfect, right? And, and even as I've moved into a new space and I should have learned my lesson, I spend a lot of time looking at videos of how to flip furniture. I don't own tools. So <laughs> I don't know how this is gonna go. I don't, I don't have a paintbrush even, like, but I can fill up my time trying to make this house great too. Whatever we're given, that's our temptation, is to fill up our time making our own thing great. And it's what Boaz could have done, right? He could have focused on the fact that he is a wealthy landowner. He is making Israel's name great by producing all of these great crops. And he can think about how Ruth plays into that and whether or not she's worth it. But he refuses to think that way because he is thinking about what God is doing to the nations, right? He's thinking about a completely different story than just his own little story. And through that, like Tim Mackey said, God's big story gets to be told in this little story of family. And that is what we as God's people are also invited into through hospitality. This is good news for Ruth and it's good news for Boaz. He gets to be a part of a much bigger thing than he imagined, not because he gave some charity to make himself feel better about the fact that he had more than her, but because he welcomed her to a spot at his table. And as we go through our services week in and week out, we ourselves come to a table here at Mosaic. We are invited to the Lord's Supper because we believe that God himself calls us to it. Jesus always brings us back to his table this place where we all have a seat. And we, whether or not we have a lot or a little, and we're going to talk about having a little next week. Jonathan is going to talk about what it means to host like Jesus when you don't even have a house, right? But when we come in and we have things to offer, we are still just the little kids setting the table. When people come over to my house, my kids set the table, and they have no idea what we're eating, right? Like, they have no idea what's in store. They don't 
they don't know how to set the table. Like, <laughs> if I'm being honest, they always get the wrong plates. And they're excited. They get to be a part of it. And that's, that's the role of us as God's people is to be the excited little kids setting the table. It's exciting to remember that God's plans are always bigger than what we can see or what we can build or what we can know. God is always doing a bigger thing than what we want for our city. God wants bigger and he wants better. God wants bigger for our lives and our stories than we can ask or imagine if only we will be faithful to his way of doing things. And that is the invitation at the table. And so that is why we're going to move right into that. Um, so the band can go ahead and come back up. And we're going to move. What we do here at Mosaic is we have everybody come. And they take some bread and a cup. And we take together as this reminder of unity that we have in God. As a reminder that by some mystery, broken bread can lead to redemption. These little things that we do day in and day out. By the power of the Spirit by the redemption of Jesus, or something completely different. And we believe that, and we practice that in physical and finite ways here. Um, so please come. We're going to have a time of worship, and then we'll take it all together.